was working in the sea for pirates. Working in the sea for pirates is a very, very difficult thing. There is a, a number of problems. One is that there isn't one person in the movie who's a good sailor. So um, I, I, I personally live on a, a, a Dramamine and coffee when I'm out there. Um, my favorite pirate films are the ones that are based on land. But uh, we had a, when we filmed two or three back to back over a period of two years, I must have spent about a quarter of my life at sea, and uh, I've never felt so sick in my life. There's no acting required because all you've got to do is try and keep your breakfast down. Hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah. What was it that that led you into acting? Um. I'll tell you exactly what it was. I was—I re I remember the moment really clearly. I was sitting at school. I must have been about, I would guess, eight years old. And I had a very, very big problem with my attention span. And I didn't really listen to teachers. And I spent most of my time looking out of the window. And this one teacher, I remember, we were doing some math classes, of which I was famously terrible. You know, I thought eight and eight was 88. You know, that's how bad I was at math. And I was looking out of the window, and I noticed while we were doing this class, and we were all writing stuff down that we'd been asked to copy out of our book, the teacher went to the blackboard very quietly and wrote these lines that I still remember. My sunbeams are dancing in the meadow below where daisies and tulips, uh, tulips, <laughs> And daffodils grow. And I thought, wow, she's really weird. She's really gone crazy now that this is whatever her name was. And then she wiped them out. And then she turned to the class and said, uh, okay, listen up, children. Can anybody tell me what I've just written on the blackboard? And of course, I wasn't paying attention to the maths. And so I said, um, you just wrote, my sunbeams are dancing in the meadow below where daisies and tulips and, and, uh, and uh, buttercups grow. And she said, great, you're the lead in the school play. <laughs> and I thought, this is really when I'm being rewarded for not paying any attention to her, to her teaching. And then, so that, that got the hook in me. But then my mother came to see the play, in which I delivered that immortal line, and bought me a chocolate bar and a copy of a, a, a comic called The Dandy afterwards. And I thought, wow, not only do I not have to pay attention in maths, but I get rewarded afterwards. So that was it for me. That was it. I was never going to be a mathematician. I was always going to be an actor. So food prevails all. <laughs> food, um, food as a substitute for cash and <laughs> an, an ability not to have to take any form of test whatsoever. That was, that was the basic reasoning for it. So the common core is not going to work for him. No. <laughs> out, out of all the jobs that you've done in your entire lifespan, uh, Give us one, not acting, that is your most favorite memory of that job or what that you did that that didn't involve... Hmm. Now, just, just, you're asking me about a job that I've done other than acting? Yes, that you enjoyed and loved. Well, I only have done one other job other than acting, and that was... Um, it actually it ended up involving a bit of acting, actually, because... Um, when I left school and I said I wanted to go to work in the theatre, um, and I left school quite early, I left at 16, my mother said, well, you've got to earn some money because we can't just support you while you do this. So she worked in this insurance company. And this is back in the day before computers. And she got me a job as a, what's called a filing clerk. 
Now, a, a filing clerk is now a computer, right? But in those days, it was spotty young boys of 16 who would go and get all of the, all of the envelopes with people's uh, files in them and checks in them. And they would go back to this big room and you'd put them alphabetically in, you know, wherever they were. And I was so bored with this after a week. I would just get these things and be like, screw it. And I would just shove them <laughs> behind. Not even alphabetize them. And unfortunately, one of the things had a check, and this is 1971, had a check for £50,000 in it. And they couldn't find it. And they said, what happened? And I, and I went, and I knew what I'd done. I'd stuffed it somewhere. And they'd never find it. This room was like four times as big as this shelf. And I said, I don't know, I think there might be asbestos in the building. I came up with a really peculiar, I don't know what happened to everything. So they didn't want a lawsuit, and I was let off. But uh, that's the only other job I've ever done, uh, um, apart from being an actor. So when you're acting, of course, you get put on all the makeup. Do you find it difficult to, to eat or drink? Or do you not have to do a lot of the, face, the heavy facial makeup? No, um, I, I was very clear when I started that when you talk to Lee Ehrenberg, you know, he has a wig and he has a beard and he has these uh, teeth that go and he has these things in his eyes. So uh, I decided that I was going to grow my own hair. There was a simple choice. Am I going to have people go like this to me all day with glue in the heat or am I going to look like a twat? For, for five months while I did. So I went for looking like a twat. So, um, and I won't put them in my eyes because uh, I told them I had told them I had moments in my eyes. <laughs> and, I and I can't put the teeth in because I've got a very bad gag reflex. So they just paint my teeth every every scene. So basically Jeffrey Rush and Johnny Depp and, and Lee Arenberg and uh, uh, Marty Clever and uh, Mackenzie Crook going for about two to three hours. I go in for five minutes and just show, throw rubbish in my face, and I go on the set and I'm ready to work. So my makeup takes about seven and a half minutes. <laughs> you had a, a really long career. You've worked in a lot of amazing saying I'm old. <laughs> Ish. <laughs> and and you've, been, you've been in a lot of very famous uh, films, television, stage. Are you a person that still get ever gets starstruck, or just like, oh, that's Tom Cruise, I work with him, no big deal, or that's Johnny Depp, he's just a guy I worked with? I, you know, it, it, that's a very good question because I do get starstruck, but 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 not not with people like Tom Cruise or or, or Johnny Depp necessarily. Um, the starstruck I get is when I um, well, I'll tell you a great story. I was doing a play in the. Um, uh, in the West End, which is our equivalent of Broadway, uh, with the, the great Dan Maggie Smith. And um, she phoned up my dressing room one night after the show and said, she said, I like darling. She said, uh, you're a vodka drinker, aren't you? I said, yes, I am, because I did. I was in those days. It's white wine only. And she said, I've got a guest, and I've only got wine. Bring some vodka down, uh, and you can, you can look after it. And I went, that's what I thought, oh, God, I don't know to do. I want to drink with my mates. And I went down to her dressing room. And there, sitting on Dame Maggie's bed, was Lauren Bacall. And I said, oh my God, Mr. Bacall. And we drank a bottle of vodka together and had a, a raucous night, and it's one of the greatest. <laughs> that, I was starstruck that night. Yeah, I really was. And it's things like that that get to me. You know, when you get a little glimpse of old Hollywood, 
that those things really get to me, you know, like I meet those people. And sadly, Lauren's gone now, and uh, it, it would be very hard to meet people of, of that stature now. If I could just get drunk with Kirk Douglas once, I'd Because <laughs> I think he's the last one of the, the, the Golden Era. Working um, American versus everybody else, because we obviously have a very stylized way that we do movies, and working, we'll say, across the pond, or any other country for that matter, uh, what's, what's one of the biggest differences? Do you, is there a difference? Is it harder working for Americans? Is it harder working, you know? That's a good question, say? too. Um, working in Europe or, or, or all over the world, I've worked in uh, uh, the Middle East, and I've worked in Australia, and, and, and here in America. The, the thing about working in America, I, I was 46 years old when I was working in a theater and I looked in the mirror one night and I said, oh, I guess I'll never ever work on a back lot in Hollywood now. And, and I decided not to take any more work until I did some films, you know, give it one last chance. And uh, when I did get the first Pirates film and I was driven the morning of my first day, you know, I'd been to Universal Studios many times, but they drove me through the artist's uh, 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 entrance. And I said to the driver, stop. And he said, well, well, you've forgotten something, it's too late, we can't go back. I said, no, just back up and drive back through again slowly. <laughs> this, is, this is Hollywood. For someone like me who grew up in American movies, nothing can ever uh, touch working in America. And of course now that American television is that, remember when I started working in the 70s, British television was regarded as the greatest television in the world. I did things like uh, Poldark and, and um, I Claudius, which should be things that people still watch now. But now, American television is the greatest television in the world, so I'm just so proud to be a part of that and to have been part of the movies as well. And I mean supernatural, for God's sake. I was walking down Piccadilly only uh, a year ago, uh, a little bit time over, I'm just having a nice lunch, and these two Japanese women came up to him and went, you know, pretty, uh, American television. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, what led you to white wine from vodka? My liver. <laughs> My liver said, "Stop the vodka." May I suggest white wine? And I said, "Gotcha. You and me till the end, buddy." <laughs> Having done stage television movies, do you have? particular favorite you like to yes, act in? And absolutely. do you have a favorite to watch as a member of the audience? Oh yes, movies only. I can't stand going to the theater. I'll only go to the theater if I have written depositions from three people who've seen it and are in it that I won't be bored. And then I'll go. <laughs> because a bad night in the theater is the worst thing you could ever have. But as far as what is my, my favorite is when I'm working in films, I usually sit in my trailer going, oh my God, I wish I was working in the theatre now. And then I'm sitting in my dressing room in the theatre saying, just give me a movie, just give me a movie. But that's because actors are never satisfied and they never should be. Otherwise they'd be bored. So television's probably the best mix, really. You were given... Three Did you want a serious answer to that? I mean, I, am, I, am I being too flippant about this? Because that's the truth. That's what I thought. Yeah. If you were given three dream cars and you had absolutely 
If I was given three what? If you were given three dream cars, whether it's a Mini Cooper, whether oh, it's right. a Lamborghini, uh, Bugatti, whether it's a uh, Dodge Viper, whether it's whatever, uh, or a, a Honda Element, what three cars would you drive? Well, it would not be a Honda Element. <laughs> yeah. And if you give me a Prius, I will kill you with all of your family. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, I had a... I bought a car when I when I first moved over to LA. I thought I really want a good car, and I bought um, a, a, a Mercedes S five hundred with all the bells and whistles, which I called the bitch. And I sadly I had her shipped to Richmond, and then one night wrecked her in the parking structure. So I don't have the bitch anymore. In England, I drive an Audi A six, and I want an Audi A eight next. Um, I'm hiring a car in Richmond at the moment, which is uh, a Hyundai Sonata. <laughs> <laughs> but if I could have any car that I wanted, I would I would find somebody who was just about to die who was great at looking after cars and had had all his life a Jensen Interceptor. The Jensen Interceptor is the most beautiful car they've ever made. And don't let anybody tell you that Mercedes Goldwyn is better. It's a Jensen, Jensen Interceptor everywhere. And, and the Minis, no. They reinvent the Mini every year. What do they do? They make it two inches bigger. One day they're going to be a Mini. Do you know what I mean? That's just a stupid way to design cars. I don't think and they're, they're, they're bigger on the outside, and they're smaller on the inside because of all the beautiful doors and stuff. So less room, and you can't park the bus. Once they made a four-door, I don't think it was a Mini anymore. The what? Once they made a four-door Mini, I don't think it was a Mini anymore. They've made a four-door Mini? You see, I didn't block that because I'd get so angry I'd go and smash it with a baseball bat. You, know? you cannot have a four-door Mini. You shouldn't have a two-door Mini. Everyone should get it the one way. You know? So there's no Jaguar E-Type on your, on your list? No, uh, no. I never was a fan of the Jaguar because it, it's a bit like British motorbikes. You know, They always look good, but they were really, really bad technically. The Jaguar has always been a shame. It's been it's in the shop every other two weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. You say, well, I've got a Jaguar. Can I see you next to No, I don't think so. I think I'll have driven it for three days. By then. <laughs> It'll be ill. <laughs> My Jaguar was ill. Hilarious. Anything else? So, given your affection for kind of old Hollywood, yeah. what, do, what do you think of our current parade of celebrities or people who are famous on Instagram? I guess. Kim Kardashians, Justin Bieber's, you know, the fun people that we get to look up to now. Well, here's the problem. Here's the, the problem with all that. And I, you know, these are people making money, and I, and I think that's what people want to do, and it's fine. I, I have no idea why people want to watch programs about those people. I mean, they, they, I, I suppose it's a bit like car crash television. You just want to watch dysfunctional people. But the real danger it's given certainly to the young actors I meet. Most of the young actors I meet are really serious about what they do. But the whole problem with things like American Idol and the X Factor, do you have that over here? Is that people want to be a singer or an actor and they say, how can I get my big break? And you go, well, th that's an irrelevance. Why don't you learn how to do the job and then see if you get successful at it? It's like, you know, if you wanted to go into insurance, say, you wouldn't go how can I be the CEO of SunTrust tomorrow? You know, you, that's not going to happen. You know, you work your way up. You know, so I, I think it's ultimately very 
bad for our culture. I won't comment, though, on, uh, on internet stars because I really don't know enough about it. And it seems to me that a lot of those people put together some rather... My, my son watches a lot of people on that. Um, interesting enough, he, he likes to watch people who eat very big hamburgers. <laughs> I don't know. They, 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 meat, they eat a lot of big meat things. And he finds this endlessly amusing. But, um, th th but I think in the, on the internet, it seems to be people have to get something good and get good at it so that they get the hits and so that then they then move more into mainstream. But, you know, I mean, seeing rich people bitching at each other has never been... I mean, well, I've watched the royal family for the last 50 years, so I, I know what that's like, and it's boring. <laughs> What's it like being an actor married to another actor? Oh, that's a very good question. An actor married to another good actor. I must tell you that Mrs. McNally and I, who, by the way, when we went to a, a Comic-Con in... Uh, I just talked to you about this tonight. We went to a Comic-Con in Atlanta, big one, Dragon Con. She completely stole my thunder. People were pushing me, were trampling me underfoot to try to get to my wife because she plays Mr. Seeds in Downton Abbey and uh, it's obviously huge hit over here. Interesting enough, just before we got together, we'd both been in print in the UK saying that we would never go with an actor again. You know, <laughs> I was never going to go with an actress and she was never going to go with an actor. Unfortunately, um, your hormones don't listen to your mind, and um, we fell in love, and so we're together now. And of course, the truth of it is, it would be very hard, particularly uh, the way my career has gone, being in England and America. And, you know, we have a saying in England that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to move to Los Angeles so I can live in Toronto. You know, because nothing's made in Los Angeles anymore. So it, it would take a very, very uh, strong woman who wasn't in the business and didn't understand that to be able to continue a relationship while she's filming Downton Abbey at Highclere Castle and I'm filming uh, Turn Washington Spies in Richmond, Virginia. So it's sort of inevitable, really. But the great thing is, I, uh, for me, Phyllis at home isn't like an actress, and I, I hope that I at home am not like an actor in all of those cliches of being needy and narcissistic and those sort of things. Although maybe you should ask Phyllis, maybe she'd say he's talking more like a scene. <laughs> Do you ever get sort of professionally competitive with each other? Like, oh, you got that role? Well, I got this one. No, I, I, I it's an interesting question because I haven't answered that, but uh, Phyllis and I, I, I'm thrilled at her success, and she's thrilled at my success, and we are and a woman of the same age, so we're hardly in competition. But we did get asked to do a show recently in, uh, thank you so much, Food and Drink. Um, well, it's not that much. But, <laughs> hey, the glass, let's go. They can't take it back. We got asked to do a show in England called the, it's called the Celebrity Antiques Road Trip. And they get to um, Zedlis celebrities, like me and my wife, and we, we did this. And then we get taken off with an expert, and we drive around in uh, classic cars, and we have a budget of £400, and we buy antiques, and then we take them to an auction and see who's got the best eye. So this was the first time we were actually we were at a TV show together. It, and she used to be in a TV show called uh, Lovejoy, which was about 
um, an antique dealer. So I was trying to psych her out, going, you know, this is a no-lose situation. Because if you win, they'll go, oh, she was in Lovejoy. If you lose, it's like, no, oh, she was in Lovejoy. So, and she thrashed me. She thrashed me, and I really took it hard. I mean, we didn't speak for like 10 minutes after she did. <laughs> so we've been directly in competition, um, but our marriage has survived it, so I think we're a pretty good team. You've just been... It's rather warm, this wine, I have to say. It's not a complaint, it's just an observation. <laughs> You've just crash-landed onto an island by boat. You have just found a safe buried in the sand. There is a random tree that has a plug-in for a TV, and for some odd reason, over in the bush, there's a working TV. You plug it in, and you open the safe. If you had any two DVD... Blu-ray series that were in that safe. What two series would you watch? To that oh TV TV series yes. Breaking Bad and Walking Dead. Wow, yeah. instant. Why? Uh, because they're the they're, uh, and this is not just because I work for AMC at the moment, although it might help me get through to series three perhaps, because I have been shot in the first series and I'm, I'm looking very ill at the moment, so I'm hoping I recover. But uh, they, they, to me, are the absolute epitome of what is great about American television. Cable shows, you know, when you make a cable show, uh, the lighting cameraman, on, um, uh, the cinematographer on Thailand said to me the other day, he said, you know, we're making a feature film every 16 days. We're making that quality. We're making a story arc. We're making the sort of stories that people talk about, the way they used to talk about movies. And what AMC have here, of course, is Breaking Bad, which not a lot of people watched, but it is, you know, I mean, how many Emmys has the show got? It's the absolute epitome of the art of filmmaking. And Walking Dead, which has all of those qualities in terms of its, its execution, but is hugely populist. And it shows that one company, one mind, one ethos, in this great medium of television can make great art and hugely entertaining uh, uh, stories that everybody wants to watch. Um, my films would be 2001 A Space Odyssey and Kubrick uh, and Cobb. Uh, I only watch films that begin with Do <laughs> <laughs> you like to watch yourself on in your films? Or your films? I did up to the age of about 38. Um, I, funny enough, that's <laughs> awful. Um, you, you have an image of yourself in your mind. I'm just coming to terms with the way I look, actually, as, uh, as all people do as they approach 60. Um, I did this thing uh, in South Africa recently with a wonderful di uh, Brian Denny and uh, William Hurt called, uh, it was called Challenger in England. I think it was called like 60 seconds or something, or 72 seconds earlier, about the Challenger disaster. And the opening shot of me wandering around, uh, I played the guy who really was at fault for the child disaster. And I, I remember that the director said, oh, come and watch the rushes. They're really good because we put a great CGI in the background of the, of the challenger taking off. And I looked at him and I went, my dad's been dead for two years. Why is he? Oh, fuck, it's me. I really couldn't believe it. And this, this is terrible. And I, and I, this is nearly true. This is nearly true. 
But I was walking down Oxford Street in uh, England a little while ago, and I thought I saw a derelict man I was going to throw him a few coins when I realized it was my reflection in selfishness. <laughs> I mean, I just, I can't get used to the way I look. So I, I like not to look at it. I used, I used to like looking at myself when I was, well, actually, I've got a bit of trim, actually. Um, when I was a fat bastard, I didn't want to look at myself at all. But um, I, I used to like it when I had jet black hair. I used to like it. And so much so that I actually, um, about eight years ago, started dyeing my hair. Until I realized that you had jet black hair for about 36 hours. And then it turns to the color of marmalade. And then you look like some Paul McCartney. And you don't have to look that way. I probably answered that question too efficiently, I'll ask that. You appeared in uh, Doctor Who, in a couple episodes of Doctor Who, and one recurring thing I've heard when I've seen interviews with other people that have been in it was that it was a thing they grew up on that they loved. Yeah. Was was it was it a show that that you grew up on that you loved? Oh. When you were young? Absolutely. I remember I must have been about six years old, and at 5.45 on Saturday, we, my parents and I used to go into town and do some shopping and come back, and I want to get in for a show called The Telegoons, which was a television puppet version of a very famous radio show called The Goons in England. And of course, at that age, I didn't listen to people saying that that was the last episode of the Telegoons. So I came back to watch the Telegoons, and I sat down and waited for the Telegoons, and they said, now the first episode of the new series, Doctor Who. And I started crying, going, oh, the Telegoons, And this thing started, bum-ba-bum, And then we same moment, and that was me glued. That was me glued. And it was the first show, and then the second story was the Daleks, and then there was the Cybermen, and then, you know, I was absolutely uh, taken with this. William Hartnell, um, then later on, turned, to be, turned out to be the father-in-law of my agent, you know, so it was all so much part of my life. And then in 1984, I was asked to be in uh, a story called The Twin Dilemma, Colin Baker's first... Uh, uh, first outing as the Doctor, who, who I saw from in Atlanta at DragonCon uh, a month ago. And the awful thing about that for me is it's universally regarded as the worst episode of Doctor Who that has ever been made by anybody, including Sylvester McCoy. So that's, you know, that's what I have to live with. But it, it's, sort of, it's sort of great now because I'm a very, very good friend of Peter Capaldi's, and so I've been so enjoying watching his new interpretation. And, and of course, going back to the more mature Doctor, you know, we've had the whimsical younger Doctor, so great, and his crazy, I mean, I, I don't know, I, I haven't managed to talk to him about it yet, but the fact that virtually every other line of the show refers to the fact how old he is, that <laughs> must really get to him, given, you know, the fact that I look like my dad all the time. I don't know whether it, it annoys him, but yeah, a huge part of my life. Um, I love it. I, and I'd, I'd love to try to appear in it again when it wasn't so crappy. <laughs> so who is your favorite doctor? Is it Peter, or who would be your favorite? For me, I can't 
<coughs> I can't get over the fact that as a young man, William Hartnell was the first one, it was great. I, I was a little bit too uh, cool and late teen and uh, early 20s to get into Tom Baker, who's regarded as very good. Um, I've been too busy, really. I mean, Neil Tennant was fantastic. I, I never really saw much of Matt Smith. Um, so I've really rediscovered really it through Peter, and I, I'm, I'm really enjoying the experience in that I can watch it and then text and go, oh, that's great tonight. So um, it's William Hartnell, Peter Capaldi. Um, oh, who was the second one? Um, the second on. doctor? Yeah, come on, Giggs. Uh, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> I was gonna say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just had a terrible experience. I'm doing this show right down in Richmond, Virginia, and I'm the oldest person in the show. Obviously, I've been used to that for years. And I suddenly realised that the second oldest regular was born the year after I left drama school. <laughs> you laugh. I mean, I just feel. Belittled and but look at the longevity you have. Isn't that well? From my point of view, there is not much time left. <laughs> yeah, all my longevity is in my past. Okay, <laughs> you've got longevity in the future. Although not if you keep asking questions like that. Patrick Trouton. Patrick Trouton, thank you, Patrick Trouton. Um, uh, and then uh, I loved uh, John Pertwee and Tom Baker, and and have loved all of the new doctors and the new reincarnation. They've been fantastic. I did see Matt Smith once, and he was great. I, I can't quite get into such a young doctor. The doctor should be an authority figure for me, um, but that's nothing to do with his performance. That's to do with the choice that was made. So, and I like the way they turned it round with Peter and. And made it about, you know, did you love the doctor? No, of course I didn't. Now you're so old. And I, I like what they've done with that. And it was really good to have gone to one of the youngest doctors and then gone back to it being a sort of patriarchal figure. So, how do you like the electronic cigarettes that you uh, seem to have? <laughs> did, did you use to smoke and then switched over? Is it easier on set, maybe? Yeah. Um, actually, I gave up in 2009, and then I started writing a book two years ago. But I was sitting um, typing all day in my house in Los Angeles, snacking. And I thought, how can I stop this? And I thought, the thing I need is nicotine. And I just got my wife onto these because Phyllis is a professional, was a professional smoker. She smoked for Scotland, actually, at the Olympics. <laughs> And one bronze, I like to say. Um, so I decided to take these up, and I haven't looked back. But you know what's horrible, actually, about my life is that I had about a year of being able to smoke everywhere, and slowly people are getting minzy about it, and there's less and less places you can smoke, especially apparently sweets of the Marriott in Nashville. They really don't like it. Or why are they going to do? <laughs> They don't like drinking down on the on the autograph floor either, but exactly. That never happens. <laughs> somewhere, go ahead. Sorry, you have one. So, somewhere that you haven't traveled yet, but you will want to. Uh, that you have not had a chance to, but you've always wanted to. Maybe uh, as a young child, maybe uh, Japan. And I, and I missed an opportunity. I did a film in 2000 called Crust, which uh, 
And I swear to God, every word of what I'm about to say is true. It was a film about an ex-boxer who found a six-foot boxing shrimp and tried to make a television show about it. It wasn't even released in England. It got, they showed half of it in Los Angeles, and by the second half of the movie, the, the audience had left, so that they didn't bother even showing the last two reels in the days of the movies. But it became a smash hit in Japan. And in fact, there were two sequels made. Uh, one about a crab goalie, and the other one about a lobster pole vaulter, right? Um, can we see this? What? Can we see this? Uh, not if I can help it. <laughs> But during that time, deep Mr. Yamamoto, whose cinemas were full of, of, of a, ah, right down the road, full of these young girls who loved these uh, crustaceans and elderly boxers. Did I get invited over there to appear in any of the, of the sequels? No, I didn't. So I don't know how I'm going to get in there again. I don't know. Pirates in Kyoto or something. <laughs> what if you fought a shrimp? Basketball player? I think my basketball days are over. I think the shrimp is the problem, not the basketball, right? Um, anyway, this was this was like this was like two thousand. I, I think the uh, the crustacean sport genre of film in Japan has died a natural death now. So I think I'm a bit late for all that. The late Ken Russell, who was a great uh, film director, uh, who I met once. Uh, in one of the last things he wrote in the Daily Telegraph, which is a very esteemed organ in England, a newspaper organ, uh, said it was one of his favourite films ever. But <laughs> that just goes to show how crazy he was before he died. <laughs> <laughs> what interest do you have outside of it? How do you keep it so serious after that? You did every time. And you say a very question comes in, it's great. I'm sorry. Go. No, go on. What interests do you have outside of that? Um, uh, painting, uh, writing, uh, science fiction. I absolutely adore. In fact, I get testified. So I only come to these to hope to meet uh, JJ Abraham to get a science fiction film. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. Um, family. Um, and the great thing is travel, uh, which in the last, certainly in the last 15 years of my life, the, uh, this profession has afforded me. And I found that even more than travel, I love travel that other people pay for. There's <laughs> something more enjoyable about that. You know when you sit in the seat and you go, not a penny. You know, it's just more enjoyable than like, two and a half thousand dollars? Are you kidding me? Is there a country or a city that is, is practically like a second home that you just love to travel to more than any other? Uh, to Los Angeles and, uh, and New York. I, I just uh, adore those two cities. In Europe, Berlin. I think Berlin is the greatest city in Europe. But I will always love London. Um, I, I have a plan, actually, that I'm going to spend the last... Well, stop doing that. The last 20 years of my life... Um, spending summers in London, then uh, fall on the east coast of America, winter in Los Angeles, 
spring back on the east coast and then uh, and then uh, uh, summer back home. So that would be perfect because I don't like sweating and I don't like being cold. If I could just be like 62 degrees all year round, I'd be really happy. So, you know, JJ Brands, if you're out there, you could arrange that for me. <laughs> you want a spot on episode seven? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Are you going to be talking to Greg? No, this is Dr. Greg. Greg? He's going to yeah, he's actually, you don't want to talk to their friends, you want to talk to their managers. That's <laughs> I mean, if we were all riding Disney, I'm pretty sure they'll put you in. They've got to, right? We're sure it's Disney. All right, okay. Well, uh, if you could all write letters, that'd be <laughs> Okay. Do you want to play a jam? Disney. When you next see Mr. Abraham, could you please get Kevin McDonald McBall- McBall- to play the old bloke? in the film. <laughs> Preferably without a shrimp. <laughs> but we can put you with Warwick Davis. How about that? We get you with the Ewan. But no, I'm not working with any more of those people. They, uh, the marking is enough. He's, uh, one right-wing dwarf is enough. So is there, do you have a favorite food when you travel? Since, of course, you're traveling all over the country. A favorite different food? Country. Yeah. What's your, what's your favorite thing to sit on and snack on? Oh, man. They have this thing in, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, craft services. I know you familiar with craft services. But then the people keep stoked up all day. That twice a week, they have a thing in Richmond, Virginia called Lee's Fried Chicken. I think it might be General Lee. I don't know. Maybe he cooked chicken. <laughs> but I eat so much of that shit. I love that. I love it. And I, you know, I'm diabetic, so I've got to be really careful. But I don't even bother with the chicken. I just eat the skin. <laughs> so do you have a pile of skin, your glass of wine, and then your... Not a glass of wine on set. That on set? Producers of AMC's Showtime. I never drink on set, okay? Um, no, I, I, that, that's, that's fried chicken. You know? I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult living in the South. Uh, you know, because I mean, they even fry the salad down there. It's extraordinary. <laughs> Have you had fried salad? Well, you can't win it. <laughs> you want that with fries? <laughs> they even fry butter. They fry butter. Yeah, and we fry coke. Apparently, I think. Oreos. Fried coke. That's Oreos. good. And Oreos. Yeah. Snickers. I heard something great today. What was that guy say? <laughs> I can't remember the sun in I'm collecting phrases with y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and no, because this guy said something like. Are you preparing for a seven roll? <laughs> I should <laughs> But it's not looking good with the accent at the moment. I can't remember what this guy said. But there was a nice thing happened to me at Atlanta that me and Phyllis walked out. She'd just done, met a lot of down people. And a guy came up and said, um, uh, I just want to say to y'all, Thank y'all for coming. Thanks for being y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. I thought it was great. There's not, there's Southern hospitality is, is a true and amazing thing. Um, I'm hoping to get a bit of time. I'm a great fan of Laurel and Hardy. And I think I, I think I really like being down south because I just loved Oliver Hardy as a kid. Most people like Stan Gerber. 
he was the English one that I loved, Oliver Hardy, and I, I'm determined to go and see uh, Oliver Hardy's birthplace in, in Harlem, Georgia. Um, and I hope they have a suitable sort of memorial to it. They'll end on a funeral and memorials are still. <laughs> Always leave them laughing. You must have one more serious question for me. <laughs> of course. Of course. Are there any particular um, charities or causes that you support? Yes. <laughs> May we know that? <laughs> I, um, I actually don't uh, like to talk about them very much because um, I think it's sort of counterproductive, really, particularly as the ones that I support involve a great deal of grief and trauma to the people around them. So I, I don't think I don't think it's a subject for Okay. Yeah. If that's okay. And I, and I think it's better done quietly. I know I'm not going to get a night of this way. <laughs> shout about it from the rooftops, but I, I, I think it's best kept. So we should write into the Queen too for Nighthead, right? Oh, if you could. I'd be so grateful. You can tweet her now. I was going to say, you can tweet her now. So, Knighthood or Star Wars, which would you pick? Star Wars? Sir Star Wars. Knighted for being in Star Wars, having done a lot of charity. How about that? Would that work well? Up there with the Sir John Elton, Sir Johnny Ive. Well, John Gibbs is sir. He's been knighted. Oh, has it? He's been given a knight to, 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 um, to Mick Jagger, for heaven's sake. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they gave him Mick Jagger. Oh. I think he's Sir Mick Jagger, isn't he? I, he might change his name. I have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> he dances like might just be Jagger. Look, come on, Sir Kevin McNally. It's got a ring. It does roll off the tongue. It does roll off the tongue. So there's this stereotype about British people saying aluminum. Oh, can, can we hear how you pronounce it? No, there's a stereotype <laughs> about American people saying aluminum, right? Can I just say the letter I? The letter I. Do you say platinum? No, you say platinum, don't you? Um, iridium, you don't say iridium. Why do you say aluminum? Why did you just no get the uh, What? There's we, no we I in our version. We dropped an I. There's not an extra I. We only have aluminum. We don't have aluminium. Yes. That's all <laughs> of your problems. When, when the first letter came over from, from your, your rulers in England and said, we're sending you a supply of aluminium. The fact that the page got creased and you went through these things and they're sending aluminum. You know, you could have later looked back and gone, sorry we got that wrong. It's aluminium. We had fried chicken. I mean, we were... We were, we were had fried chicken instead. Listen, I, I've written a lot about how difficult it is being, uh, being English earlier here because the little differences in language. I mean, the fact that you have uh, biscuits and gravy that is, now, biscuits and gravy is something you would not serve in England, right? The fact that it happens to be 
actually muffins and something that looks like sputum when you're ill um, is, is not my fault, right? The, the biscuits and gravy, you shouldn't eat biscuits and gravy. Right? You should have biscuits at tea time and then gravy with your chicken later. I once said to, actually, when I first, <laughs> when I first came to New York in 1977, I, was, I met the man who'd created 60 Minutes, the great television program. And I was invited, I've all 21 years ago, I was invited up to his house, this huge apartment on the, on the Upper West Side. And I'd forgotten my cigarettes. And I went up to him and I said, excuse me, do you mind if I bum a fag? <laughs> and he threw me out of the place. He just said, you, you do what you like, but not in my apartment, bitch. I mean, he was like, really annoyed, you know. And you've got to be very careful. You know, I remember saying to a taxi driver, can I get something out of your boot? as we arrived, and he was like, he looked at me like I was some sort of transvestite, sort of crazy person. And you know, and I still can't remember to call it trunk, and I still can't remember to call it a hood. You've got to be so careful. 